Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Higginson Strategy are proud sponsors of Prospects Top Thinkers. They're an award-winning B Corp communications agency for purpose-led businesses. Whether it's fighting the tide against plastic pollution or campaigning for women's rights, Higginson Strategy creates campaigns it truly believes in that deliver media and public affairs results. If you'd like to know more, please visit www.higginsstrategy.com. Welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, contributing editor at Prospect, and if I had a drum to roll, I'd be rolling it right now, because my guest this week is officially our top thinker of the year 2024, and his name is Daron Asamoglu. A Stakhanovite economist, a best-selling author and an all-round renaissance man, Daron topped the ballot when thousands of our readers voted in an online poll, a result then enthusiastically endorsed by the Prospect team. Born in Turkey, trained in Britain, he's an expert on, well, labour, tech, development, political economy, economic theory, and that's even before we get to his meanderings beyond his own discipline and into democracy, liberty, and the institutions that uphold all of that. So it's a little bit hard to know where to start, but I suspect it's the problem of how we can ensure power and rewards are fairly shared as tech remakes our world that has enticed our readers to pick him as the most important mind for these times. So why don't we start there? And I wonder, Darren, if you could start by explaining some of the big forces that you think are out there that might make sense of why so many people in our societies currently are feeling like life just isn't fair. Well, first of all, Tom, thanks. It's a great pleasure to be with you, and I am incredibly honored for this uh, fantastic outcome. I mean, you know, I couldn't have dreamt of being shortlisted for uh, such a prestigious award, and beyond that, now I've been chosen as the top global thinker. Wow, I can't believe it. So thank you. Thanks very much to the to the readers of the Prospect Magazine. Thanks to the editorial team of the Prospect Magazine, and to you, Tom. So, and but but I'm really happy to be here because I think these issues are absolutely urgent. And, uh, you know, I've been researching and thinking about 
institutions such as democracy, dictatorship, uh, labor laws, and their effects on economic and political development for three decades. And I've also been thinking about what shapes technology and how technology impacts our society for essentially the same length of time. And the overall conclusion that I have reached over the years is that there's nothing automatic about shared prosperity. We are incredibly lucky today. We live comfortable, healthy, prosperous lives in at least the industrialized countries. But nothing about that was inevitable. Nothing about that was automatic. And we shouldn't take that for granted, especially in the age of AI, in my opinion. And the main thesis that I've been trying to talk about for about a decade, and the new book that I have with Simon Johnson, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity, sort of gives the main outlines of that argument, as well as some of the historical applications of it, is that we need to build the right institutions and we need to redirect technological change towards things that are good for citizens, for workers, for democracy, in order to be able to benefit from them broadly as a society. If we don't build the right institutions, only a few people will benefit from whatever advances we make. And if we let technology be dominated by a few companies, few elites, there is no guarantee that it will actually serve the needs and the benefits of society. At some level, this seems fairly obvious, except that it runs counter to what a lot of people in our modern society believe, and also some ideas in economics. There is a general techno-optimism, at least very strong in the United States until just this year or perhaps uh, two years ago, where some grumblings have already started, which is that we should just let bright technology entrepreneurs do anything they want because they are going to be advancing the technology frontier of the world. And when that happens, via an automatic process, we're all going to get better products, better healthcare, better anti-pandemic measures, better anti-global warming technologies, and broad sharedly, broadly shared prosperity. Of course, if you look at the last 30, 40 years, you don't see any evidence of that. In fact, we see huge inequalities building up, many groups falling behind. And if you look at history the right way, I think you don't see any evidence for that as well. But that belief was very strong. And in some sense, you can see our book as a corrective against that view. And what I have been trying to do is really push the framework of how we should think about AI within this light and also take a proactive view, how we can shape the future of work in a better way, how we can redirect AI efforts towards things that will be beneficial for workers, for citizens, for democracy. So that's the agenda. Let's just pause. We'll come back to the institutions, obviously all important, but let's just pause on the kind of nature of technology itself. There is, I think, a traditional view within economics, which... Um, might not be quite as complacent as the Silicon Valley kind of uh, caricature of, of everyone's going to win out of this all of the time. But it does sort of say, and 
you know, with some reason, when you look at living standards 200 years ago compared to now, that technology, technology has marched on. It's made us able to do more things more efficiently. And there might be a few bumps on the way as a few jobs disappear and new ones pop up or whatever, and it enriches everyone. But as I understand it, you seem to want us to disentangle different forms of technology that do different things for workers in a way that maybe people haven't pulled them apart before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I don't want to criticize my own discipline of economics. I think there are a lot of very good works on technology and long-run economic growth. And more generally, I think if you want to understand the issue of technology and prosperity, you need to have two potentially conflicting ideas in your head at the same time. One is, yes, it's absolutely true that today we are so much more comfortable than people who lived, say, early 1700s because of technology. If it wasn't for the process of discoveries that started before and during the British Industrial Revolution and then translated into a whole slew of scientific breakthroughs and fantastic improvements in production techniques, in new products, new medications, all of these are really at the heart of why we are so much more comfortable and healthier today than our great-great-great-grandparents. But that has to be combined with the idea that if you look at specific episodes, you don't see everybody benefiting from technological advances. On the contrary, technology often is impoverishing towards certain groups. And there is nothing automatic about that phase giving way to a more broadly shared prosperity era. It takes a lot of struggle. It takes a lot of changes in politics, changes in institutions, redirecting technological change. And this is the reason why we need to enrich our framework of economics and think about what different types of technologies do. And I think the bottom line is actually quite clear. Once again, a simple example would suffice. And I think the best example that I find is, uh, you know, think about this oft-quoted semi-joke that the future factory will have two employees, a man and a dog. The man will be there to feed the dog and the dog is there to make sure that the man doesn't touch the equipment. If we are really heading towards a factory like that, it could be very good for productivity. A completely automated factory, it's going to produce a tremendous amount of output and labor ceases to be a constraint. But you can see that if that factory becomes twice as productive, employers are not going to rush out to buy, um, to, 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 to hire more people. They don't need even that person and his dog. So there is no reason for firms to pay higher wages and share those increases in productivity with labor. And the key of that is that we are thinking in this example of a type of technological change that eliminates labor, that makes labor redundant. And that's what we call automation. And if the history of technological progress was one of just automation, we wouldn't see shared prosperity. So why do we see shared prosperity? Because if you look at key episodes, there are many other technological breakthroughs that reinstate labor into the production process. Don't just eliminate labor, but they make labor very important. 
What are those? They are things that create new tasks. They are things that create specific skill needs. So when we introduce new machinery, we don't just sideline labor, but we also need people to look after that machinery, more skilled operators to operate that machinery, design workers, maintenance workers, repair workers. So the history of manufacturing, especially during periods in which wages increase, is exactly this process of some automation, but also new tasks, new competences, new needs for labor. That's what's really critical. And when you look at history, you see periods in which automation dominates, and then you don't get this shared prosperity. And then there's a struggle over reinstating technology towards a path that is going to be good for labor as well. I can imagine um, more conventional economists responding in two ways, one of which would be to accuse you of playing God in saying, what, who, do you, who do you think you are to say what way technology is going to play out in a different way? So I'm interested in, 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 in any examples of, of how you could do it. But the other one might be that you're not willing to play God enough because we could let these scientists invent this brilliant machine that's going to work while the dog guards the person from not getting involved with the machine and then we could just redistribute from the robot owner to everyone else and everyone can live ever happily ever after so what do you say with either of those charges either you're playing god or you're not playing a god enough when it comes to redistributing the money at the end of the day well i think both of those are very important issues but i guess you are one step ahead of me tom so those issues come after the description stage. So, so far what I was doing mostly was describing how technology affects wages and productivity and shared prosperity. And then once we agree on this, and there are people who would not even agree with this, for example, there would be some economists and some uh, technologists who would say, you are understating how automation itself will later on create other demands for labor. And that's a theme we take on in the book, and I deal with it in greater detail in my academic articles. But once we accept that automation by itself is not going to be a sufficient engine of shared prosperity, then the question becomes what to do about it. And that's where you're playing God and or are you playing God enough questions are relevant. So you could agree with me until this point and then after that, you could throw up your hands and you could say, look, I, I accept there are these different types of technological changes. They're going to have very different effects. But innovation is such an organic, decentralized process that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, any government can do about it. And I agree that innovation is a step-by-step process. It is organic. Its best form is like an evolutionary one. But it doesn't mean that other actors, governments, civil society, the democratic process, don't have some influence in steering its direction. So I think the question is how much that works and how confident can we be that when there is a desire to steer it in some direction, that's going to work. And I would say historical evidence is in favor of some limited amount of steering. If you look at breakthrough technologies of the 20th century, the fingerprints of the government is all over them. And often the governments led by the U.S. government, the Defense Department and uh, research agencies got what they wanted. They wanted better aerospace technologies. They got them. They wanted better sensors. They got them. 
They wanted better communication tools. They got them and they got the internet. They wanted, they wanted better antibiotics. They got them. So enough support and steering from the government works. What doesn't work? And I think that's where industrial policy uh, on steroids goes wrong, is if you let bureaucrats decide what technology should be. Bureaucrats are not good at becoming innovators. But that doesn't mean that they don't have some power to set the agenda and steer, you know, saying, you know, we should put more in research money in healthcare rather than in candy. So that, that can work. Second, we also have some recent success stories here. I think the best one is, you know, it's hard to mention the energy sector and climate change as a success story, but it is it has a silver lining, which is that after decades of putting all of our eggs in the fossil fuel basket, around 2000s, uh, a number of governments started passing enough regulations for cars, including California and then other U.S. states, uh, European economies, and then subsidies for green technologies. And as a result of that, there was a tremendous uh, boom in new innovations and in renewables, solar panels, uh, wind technologies, and so on. And within about 10 years, these technologies that were about 10 times as expensive as fossil fuels for electricity generation have now become cheaper than fossil fuels for electricity generation. So even a modicum of government steering seems to work. Now, it, the, the situation with AI is more complicated. I don't deny that. But I don't think we need to throw up our hands and say there's nothing we can do. But why not play the second kind of God, which is let the market economy rip and then just interfere in terms of redistributing income. And in fact, there are very good theories in economics that say that's exactly what you should do. You know, the economy is actually more complicated than these simple models, models posit. First of all, when it comes to technology, the market doesn't work very well. Technology is a very complex process by virtue of exactly what we talked about. It's very evolutionary. It's very organic. It's very step-by-step. -step. There is no theorem in economics that says that that sort of process is going to go to the right place. So you don't necessarily want the market to just choose exactly how to allocate the technologies. You know, one favorite example that, that I have is the Haber-Bosch process. Amazing technology. Uh, it's been completely critical, for example, for us to produce the kind of fertilizers uh, on which our world food production completely depends today. But then as soon as German chemists discovered that, they put it to use to build bombs because that's, what, that's where the money was. So, you know, the market process is going to take innovations in all sorts of directions that we may not want. So that's one reason. But second reason is actually, I think, redistributing massive amounts of money especially in the age of AI, would create a very dystopian society. Imagine a society in which Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Sam Altman earn everything, and then we go back to them for crumbs so that we can feed the 80% of the world population. I think that would be a very weird, very depressive kind of place. Moreover, they wouldn't accept it. I mean, even today, those people are not very keen on redistribution. If they became, you know, 100 times richer and we became 100 times more dispensable as workers, what makes you think they're going to accept that? Okay, you've persuaded me on all of that. But what do you think about, if you're looking at this from the point of view of the UK, a country you know well, 
if you're the Ch- China or the uh, or the US, you might have the kind of heft in terms of your internal production to to be able to steer technology. But if you're the UK or France, never mind a sort of Cyprus or something, do, is it still worth trying to steer policy? Yeah, I think you know. Look, excellent question, Tom, because I think the problem for the US in some sense is conceptually simpler. US is at the frontier, and so is China perhaps to some degree when it comes to some parts of AI, including facial recognition type technologies. And so we can talk about US government having a say in the direction in which the new technologies are going to go. For all other countries, but especially for countries such as the UK or France, you know, they're not quite at the frontier. They're not too far, but they're not quite at the frontier. So that complicates things. But I would say it really creates one advantage and one disadvantage. The advantage is that the UK doesn't have the biggest obstacle that exists in the US against finding a more socially beneficial direction for technology, the big and very, very powerful tech companies. It's no wonder that EU, the European Commission, has been at the forefront of regulation because they're not beholden to Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook in the same way that U.S. regulators are. So that's the advantage. You can be more independent. The disadvantage is that you have to do two things at the same time. One is you have to put more resources into digital technologies, digital competences, and AI to catch up with the frontier while at the same time already start trying to reshape the frontier as you're approaching it. But I think it's feasible, and, and I think, you know, the UK has amazing academic institutions, great talent. Now it, it is paying a lot of attention to AI as, as a technology that's going to shape its production capabilities in the future. So the influence of the UK and the influence of European, continental European countries is going to be very positive to the direction of technology. <laughs> I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect. After the break, we'll hear more from Tom and Darren as they discuss technology and inequality. But first, I'd like to tell you about our subscription offer. Take out a digital subscription to Prospect and you can enjoy a one-month free trial to our digital content. You'll immediately get full access to rigorously fact-checked, truly independent analysis and perspectives. There's no commitment and you can cancel at any time. To take advantage of this offer, visit our website or go to your favorite search engine and search for Prospect Magazine subscription. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, that's great on technology. Let's turn to the other giant theme, which is institutions. And if I've caught you right... They are all important to ensuring whatever gains there are to be had from the tech are going to be shared around rather than hoarded by an elite. And just before I let you expand, I just thought it might be worth explaining for our listeners that what makes this so urgent is that for all the IT, for all the efficiencies and growth of the last half century, on some numbers at least, wages for the typical American working man haven't budged an inch. Um, now, unions play a part, some people say. Also, democracy more generally, which some economists are a bit allergic to and worry about sort of managing it and boxing it in. But not you, I think. No, no. I mean, look, I think absolutely. And this is a little bit of a boring place to start. But I 100% agree with you. Institutions are all important. And they are particularly important today because I cannot think of the direction of technological change without thinking of institutions. Right now, we have a particular direction of technology because Silicon Valley is so powerful and it's not regulated. That's an institutional choice. If we are thinking about redirecting technological change, that's an institutional choice. But moreover, the distribution of who gains and who loses is both technological and institutional. It's technological because we talked about, you know, whether it's going to be new tasks for workers or just automation and sidelining of workers. That's going to be the focus. But it's also institutional. We create a bigger pie. How do we distribute that pie? So all of those are critical. And if we're going to redirect technological change, we need a new ecosystem, new competition measures. We need to have new agencies, perhaps, for uh, developing the right kind of soft-touch subsidies in order to say, encourage more pro-worker technologies or find ways in which, you know, new social media tools can be pro-democracy rather than anti-democracy. So those are all institutional features. And I find it hard to believe that we could do any of that in a non-democratic context. And you are absolutely right. Democracy is not an uncontroversial topic. It is one aspect of a broader ensemble of institutions that we care about. It's certainly an important one as the Western world evolved over the last 200 years. By the way, it was just like the technological good things that I talked about earlier. It was not an automatic process. It's one of the biggest struggles in Western history to actually demand and get democracy in the UK, in France, in other countries. And democracy also gets a very bad rap because we're in a very complex world. We've been in a very complex world for several hundred years of years. Lots of conflicts, lots of different demands, and lots of different ways in which uh, distinct interests are going to try to impose their wishes on the rest of society. So any institutional arrangement is going to be strained from time to time. So people see the weaknesses of democracy. And many social scientists have at times thought, you know, democracy actually doesn't work so well. I mean, going back to Plato, Plato hated democracy or anything to do with democracy. So I actually sort of have been exploring this issue over the years from very different angles, historically, theoretically, conceptually, and empirically during the more recent period. And the conclusion that I have reached is that 
Sure, democracy is not perfect, but we do tend to understate its big achievements. And one of the biggest achievements is actually that democracy is good for growth. Democratic countries grow quite a bit faster than non-democratic countries. So if you compare China to, say, the UK, of course, you're comparing apples and oranges, and you're not going to say, oh, well, you know, China is growing faster than the UK, therefore democracy must be bad. That's a silly thing to do. But a much better thing is to look at countries, and there are about 90 of them, that have democratized over the last 50 years, and, uh, and then ask how were they growing before compared to other comparable countries, and how did their growth trajectory change after democratization? When you do that, you get a very clear answer that they tend to, on average, increase their GDP per capita, income per capita, by about 25% in the next 20, 25 years. So it's a pretty big positive effect. And when you look at the details of how they achieve that, it's even better. They achieve that by investing in education, by investing in health, and uh, by actually redistributing some more as well. They increase taxes and transfers. So they do actually the kinds of things that we expect from democracies to do. They're not malfunctioning. I mean, of course, you can find one or two examples that have been complete disasters, and every one of them has problems. But on average, they're doing okay. That's encouraging and heartening, particularly in these um, times. Could I just test how, how far you'd go? I'm thinking back in the 1940s, people, you know, progressive people, certainly here in the UK, right through to the moderate part of the Conservative Party, would all have been in favour of nationalising the Bank of England to put it under the control of a democratically accountable treasury. But to question the independence of a central bank today puts you beyond the pale of mainstream respectability. I wonder, is it is it possible that the mainstream is wrong? That is something that's happened before, after all. You know, might it be a bit more democracy unleashed on the, on the central bankers might be helpful? Yeah, that's a difficult question. I think good democracies leverage technocracy, but they don't succumb to the rule of technocrats. So then you have to decide on a case-by-case basis, when is it that we want enough technocracy? What And how is it that we're going to keep the technocrats accountable? You know, it was one of the European politicians who said, the problem is we all know what to do, but the problem is to get elected once we do it. That's a really bad attitude. That really says, we, the politicians, know everything and the electorate is stupid. I think if you approach the problem with that approach, it's not going to work. So if the electorate is not well-informed, then you have to find ways within the democratic process of informing them better. But that doesn't mean that you should expect the electorate to know enough uh, nuclear physics to build nuclear reactors. If we want to have nuclear reactors built, you want to delegate that to technical experts. You want to delegate the oversight of it to technical experts, but then you need to delegate the oversight of the oversight to the electorate. So, for example, the electorate decides whether it's okay to continue with the nuclear agenda if it starts spilling over nuclear weapons or if it starts posing very big risks in terms of uh, environmental consequences or 
whether it's actually going to be useful as a transition energy. And then the electorate's going to make mistakes. You know, in Germany, I think the electoral pressure led the country too quickly to abandon nuclear technology when they could have used it. But I think it beats the alternatives. Now, I'd like to move on to a slightly more personal and quickfire series of, of, of questions, just because, you know, this is about celebrating you and your, your, your achievements and give our, our listeners a, a bit more of, of your, your journey and your work. First of all, the US Academy is sometimes caricatured by those of us over in Europe. You know, it's a bit parochial, mistaking America for the world. But you've lived in Turkey as well as in Britain. Do you ever feel that gives you a, a broader view on, like, particularly when it comes to these questions about the fragility of freedom and democracy compared to uh, the way uh, some of your American colleagues might think of these things? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I've definitely hugely benefited and enjoyed my time in the UK, and I learned a lot. And you can see the influence of, you know, learning about British Industrial Revolution and British social history on my thinking. And I think techno-optimism is much stronger in the United States, I think, given the country's history and given the influence of the tech sector. And don't get me wrong, I think Silicon Valley has been fantastic for the U.S. in some respects. It's been an engine of growth. But you don't want any institution, any segment of society to become very strong. And I think techno-optimism is the currency of Silicon Valley. It's the way in which it dominates the rest of society in the United States. So having a little bit of an outsider's perspective there, I think, was useful. Now, I've been um, obviously... uh having a quick look at your CV, and I see that your PhD was on a, what sounds like a very techie matter of, if I've got it right, contractors micro foundations of macroeconomics. Um, and when we move from something like that to these big questions about, you know, the conditions of preserving liberty and, uh, and democracy and the rest of it, it must be a bit daunting are you prepared to confess to those of us listening to the Prospect podcast, do you ever worry that you'll be called out for, I don't know, practising history or political science without a licence? Well, I think there are a couple of things here. First of all, that title also reflects how bad I was at choosing titles at the time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of a, uh, a strange thing and it reflects my own entry point and travel within economics. I was attracted to economics as a teenager because I wanted to study social and economic and political problems. I was interested in exactly the sort of questions that you're asking me about, Tom. Democracy, what does it do to long-run development? And how do you maintain democracy? Is democracy better or worse than other political systems? And I thought the economics discipline would be the one that studies these questions. So I enrolled to study economics at the University of York, and I discovered it's not what the discipline was about, but I still liked it very much. And I became more interested in things like unemployment and business cycle fluctuations during my undergraduate days. And when I went to the LSE and did a master's and then a PhD, those were the topics that I first started exploring. But then soon thereafter, I started thinking, well, can't I go back to the questions of <clears throat> political economy and institutions and so on? And I started working on those during my dissertation as well. But I didn't think 
other economists would be sufficiently interested in them. So that's why actually my dissertation didn't feature any of the work I was doing, which was very much in its infancy anyway during my uh, PhD. Uh, and it was only later on, especially when I ran into and became friends with uh, my long-run collaborator, James Robinson, that I realized there were other people interested in these issues and in the, in, interested in bringing history into economics and so on. And, uh, and, and, and uh, James and I, and then together later with Simon Johnson, we tried to forge a research direction that this, does this. And yes, I think for my thinking, bringing history, politics, economics together is essential. But the way that I would say it, and that, you know, that doesn't mean I'm, not Im- I'm, I'm immune to the criticism that, you know, some economists might place that, you know, this is history and not rigorous economics. But I've always tried to do it in a way that still remains careful in terms of quantitative methods, empirical statistical work, because I think you want to combine these sorts of inquiries with the best that social science has to offer in terms of rigorous testing and clear conceptual delineation of the different mechanisms and, uh, and, and forces. So, so the sort of the training in economics and my adherence to some of the principles of economics have been very important for my intellectual journey. And when we think about, um, you use the phrase there, political economy, rather than what's sometimes caricatured as a rather kind of narrow and arid economics of the post-Second World War uh, era, um, when you take a really long view, who, who, who are your sort of um, intellectual heroes, if you like, um, that have inspired you on this journey? Well, I'm, I mean, I think I find many, many different thinkers very inspiring, but I also don't subscribe to all of their views. I think Marx, with whom I disagree with, was very inspiring in the way that he really did political economy in the in the sense of uh, you know politics and economics and conflict being at the center. But I think his theories of the economy and his theories of the evolution were wrong and were not that great. David Ricardo was amazing. I mean, you know. Uh, Keynes, I think, had some brilliant insights, but, you know, I don't subscribe to everything Keynes did. Douglas North, uh, you know, who did a lot to uh, think about the role of institutions in American and then European economic history, but also, you know, Paul Samuelson and Bob Solo, who were my colleagues briefly, were amazing. Yes, Bob Solo just died recently, and Paul Samuelson died a couple of years ago. They were amazing intellects and, uh, and and really fantastic people. They were both at the, you know, Paul had retired already, but he was around and Bob was at the, was just about to retire when I arrived. But I was essentially office mates with them. You know, I was in the next suite from them and I ran into them a lot. And uh, they were both very generous with their time and uh, and and very interested in talking, so they were they were amazing people. So this ability of social scientists to combine ideas from different realms, I think, is really important for bringing the best from different disciplines and different ideas into into the into our inquiries for the future. Oh, I'm pleased you mentioned Bob Solo because I I think people now associate him with this kind of 
idea that actually most of growth is manna from heaven and we can't explain it as if that was the end point. Whereas presumably that's a provocation to say economics isn't good enough yet and uh, and, and we need to get better. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know where that came from. I, I saw that. I think the Economist magazine uh, wrote something. And, and I thought that was completely wrong. I mean, it was completely wrong. Bob never said that. I mean, he... He himself, when he wrote, he took technology as exogenous. But whenever I talked to him, he was both very open to ideas about, say, what I was working on, like direction of technology. And he was always recognizing that technological progress results from human decisions. I mean, how could it be otherwise? I mean, I think even the notion that somehow you could imagine technology to be exogenous is just weird. I mean, how could it be? Yeah, yeah. I think it was a, a provocation to, to get us to think harder. But um, finally, you'll be pleased to hear the final question. I want a little tiny bit about your working day and how you get everything done. Because you write these door-stopping books, you deliver lectures around the world, you still conduct research that gets into top-notch journals every couple of months, I think. Um, what do you share? What do you delegate? I know you use graduate students for some things. What tips would you have for any of our readers who aspire to get as much brain work done as you do? <laughs> well, first of all, be lucky. I think luck is so important and so understated. There have been there have been periods in my academic life when I've been unlucky, but on the whole, I've been very lucky. I uh, landed in the right places at the right time, and and I found a lot of openness to new ideas from different quarters. I think that luck cannot be understated. Second, you know, I've always focused on things that I enjoy. Again, that's sort of entangled with luck. If I was in a different discipline or a different time, or perhaps I had a different set of interests, perhaps there would be a complete decoupling of what could get me a job or a promotion and what I was interested in, and then I would have a really hard choice. But I think in most cases, you can work on what you are passionate about and still make an impact and people will be interested. And then the third is I have been tremendously lucky again in finding good collaborators. I've worked with amazing people and I have learned so much from them. You know, over the last... 10 years, I have also worked with research assistants, but for all of my career, I work with collaborators, you know, uh, James Robinson, Simon Johnson, uh, David Otter, Pasquale Restrepo, many people I can't name because this, would, this podcast would go along for uh, even much longer, but I've been so fortunate to have their energy, their wisdom, and and when you share the work, you can get more done and you enjoy it more. So that's been that's been amazing. And then I have also sometimes used research assistants, but but it's it's actually much better to work with collaborators. They have a big stake in the project, and you can share it much more equally. And I think I found that to be a really uplifting process. Darren, thanks so much for lending us your world-beating brain to 
the Prospect podcast today and I should say to the listeners that your most recent and massively admired book with Simon Johnson is Power and Progress, Our Thousand Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. Thanks to everyone for listening and indeed to all of you who voted for Darren and the many other worthy runners-up in our Top Thinkers poll. If you enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of the brand new issue of Prospect hitting shelves today, which includes a piece I'm doing on Darren and his work alongside much, much else. Thanks all for now and until next time, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.